0: Section five of the Byzantine Empire This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Mike Botes The Byzantine Empire The Rearguard of European Civilization by Edward Ford. Chapter 5 Justinian's Successors Weakness and Decay. Justinian's marriage with Theodora had brought him no children. Though Justin, the son of his sister Vigilantia, held the office of Curoplates, master of the palace, the highest in the empire after those of Augustus and Caesar, he does not appear to have ever. Been formally designated as his uncle's successor. Justinian, indeed, seems to have distrusted and depressed him, but on his uncle's death he came forward without hesitation and was acclaimed Augustus by the court and senate, and afterwards solemnly crowned in Sancta Sophia. He was married to Sophia, a niece of Theodora. She had inherited her aunt's fiery courage, and aspired to play her part, but had not her political aptitude. Justed ascended the throne at a moment of extreme gravity. The empire was internally greatly exhausted, and its weakness was accentuated by its wide extent which necessitated the holding of worthless tracts like Italy and western Illyricum, against attack from without at a time when it had powerful enemies near at home. The savage Avars, a tartar horde perhaps akin to the Huns, probably included some fragments of that famous race, had now reached the Danube, and before long the empire was to know them only too well. An embassy from them came to Constantinople in Justin's first year, probably to ascertain what amount of blackmail he was prepared to pay. Meanwhile, they thrust the Slavs before them across the Danube. On the east, the Persians were ever ready to strike another blow. The emperor was confronted and hampered at every turn, By the great mass of self-interested bureaucracy which had become powerful during the late years of Justinian, and his efforts to relieve the burdens of the people were silently frustrated. The phenomenon is not an unusual one in history. The military service was also in a weak and disorganized condition. Justin began his reign By paying his uncle's debts, he repudiated Justinian's blackmailing policy towards the barbarians, and determined to repel ravages by force, a resolve which, in the state of the empire, was certainly ill-timed, bold and magnanimous, as it may be thought. The Avars and Slavs resumed their depredation and owing to the military policy, which had been followed for many years, of keeping only garrisons and no field force in Europe. They were able to pursue them with little opposition. Justin followed at first a policy of toleration in religious matters, He proclaimed a general remission of arrears of taxes up to the year 560, but at the same time the customs duties were increased and a tax put upon the political bread distributed to the populace of the capital. The general tendency of Justin's policy during his earlier years shows that there was much exhaustion in the provinces, and that the government was intensely unpopular. The weakness of the empire was accentuated by its tendency to break apart, owing to the diversity of its component nations. This tendency Justinian's centralizing policy had really increased. Various provinces had up to this time been grouped under great viceroys, These viceregal officers he abolished, thus weakening one of the ties which united separatist people. In 568 the emperor, who, though irritable and mentally ill-balanced, lacked neither insight nor ability, passed an edict to the effect that provincial governors were to be chosen by the local magnates and people, and installed without cost to the latter. It was a wise and well-meant measure, but it is open to question whether it was not quietly evaded. But it was in the department of foreign politics that Justin was most unfortunate. Italy, very feebly garrisoned, ravaged and nearly depopulated by plague and famine, was occupied in great part by the Longobards, with so little resistance, even considering the weakness of the empire, that the writer is forced to the conclusion that their settlements were made with its tacit consent. Real resistance was made by only the single fortress of Pavia, which held out for three years. The incident shows how helpless the Teutons were against walled towns. The empire held in 700 only the extreme south, and a district roughly corresponding to the present provinces of eastern Emilia, the Marches, Western Umbria, and Roma, with the Campanian coast and Venice comprising about a fifth part of the continental Italy. Sicily and Sardinia, however, were held for nearly three centuries yet, and the empire was hardly weakened by its loss of the provinces which cannot have paid the expense of maintenance. In 572, war again broke out with Persia. Justin refused to subsidize the Sassanids any longer for Lazica and the Caucasus passes, and Khosru Anushirvan, now in old age, but as vigorous as ever, declared war. In 573, the magister Militum per Orientem, Marcion defeated a Persian army at Sargaton, but failed to take Nisibis, and meanwhile, the Persians made a fearful raid into Syria, and dragged away a vast number of captives, 292,000, we were told, an incredible figure, Apamea, was taken and destroyed. A number of the most beautiful girls were picked out to be sent to the Khan of Turks, with whom Kusru was anxious to keep on good terms. They forestalled their shame by drowning themselves. The incident deserves the record that all heroic actions merit. Next year, the Persians captured their chronic eyesore of Dara, while in Europe, the Avars ravaged Moesia and defeated the general Tiberius, the future emperor, who led a small force against them. Justin's mind was already failing, and Sophia thought it necessary to buy a truce for a year. For which she paid forty five thousand solidi. In five hundred seventy five, this was extended for three years, except in Persarmenia, where the war went on without interruption. The payment was reduced to thirty thousand solidi per annum. Kusru in five hundred seventy six advanced into Armenia and besieged the Roman frontier fortress of Theodosiopolis but failing to take it entered Cappadocia. He destroyed Sebaste but was defeated on his march to Melitene by Justin, son of Germanus, who had been sent to oppose him. He retreated towards his own border, burning everything in his path, including the city of Melitén, but was caught up by Justin near the latter place and totally routed. Next year, however, Justin was in his turn defeated by the general to whom the Age Khosru had given place, but this was offset by a very successful eruption made by the general Mauritius, into Arzanen and Gordien. In 578, the emperor, who had long been suffering from intermittent insanity, died, and the Caesar Tiberius, whom we have already transiently met, and who had been practically emperor since 574, succeeded him. He was well-intentioned, but impulsive and ill-advised ruler. In 579, Khusru Anushirvan died, and the Romans pushed a raid eastward into Media Atropatene. In 582, the Avars, for the first time, gained a solid success over the empire, by the capture of Sirmium, but a Persian invasion of Mesopotamia was repulsed at Constantina. Meanwhile, the savage Slavs were penetrating into the Balkan provinces, not to plunder but to settle. Little could be done to check them at present. The Persian war demanded the presence of the whole available forces on the eastern frontier but Tiberius had made a vigorous effort to reorganize the army, which had been in a bad and mutinous condition ever since the latter years of Justinian. Preposterous Liberality. For this the civil officials were chiefly responsible, since their policy was, as is common with bureaucratic bodies, exaggeratedly anti-militarist. The troops, more or less neglected and furnished with pay at very irregular intervals, grew discontented, and tended to become what the army of old Rome had been in the 3rd century, a danger to the state rather than its protection. Tiberius's domestic policy was most unfortunate, not to say absurd. He remitted a fourth of the direct taxation, a measure which perhaps admitted of defence, though the removal of the duty on the political bread could only have been devised as a means to carry favour with the idle populace of the capital. Absolutely indefensible are his grants to members of all professions, not merely scholars and physicians, but lawyers, goldsmiths and bankers. Comment is needless. The donations to the army were perhaps a little more sensible, since it was necessary to conciliate the ill-used troops but it was dangerous to pamper them, and Tiberius's successor had to reap the evil fruits of his policy. Meanwhile, of course, this lavishness emptied the treasury. Tiberius died on August 5, 582, having designated as his successor his best general and trusted friend, the Cappadocian Mauritius, whom we have seen in action against Persia, and whom he had married to his youngest daughter, Constantina. The reign of Maurice opened with a disaster in the east. The Romans were well beaten in Armenia, owing to quarrels between their generals, while in Europe the Avars took Singidunum, Belgrade. Morris bought off the latter with a subsidy of 120,000 solidi. They had already received 80,000 in 581, and 100,000 in 582. Little could be done by force against them, for the whole field army of the Empire was in the east, and When they began to take fortresses, they were becoming something more than a trouble. The next two years were marked by indecisive fighting on the Persian border, while in Europe the Slavs settled everywhere in the wasted provinces. In Greece they squatted all over the interior, and the Hellenes were forced everywhere seaward abandoning such homes of their race as Sparta and Megalopolis. One of these refugees on the coast, which afterwards grew into an important city, was the headland in Laconia, where had once been the tribute station from which the Minoan seeking dominated Peloponnesus, and where the emigrants now founded famous Monemvasia. The same thing took place in Dalmatia. The Slavs, in Thrace, however, were defeated by a small Roman division under Comentiolus. In 586, Philippicus, Maurice's brother-in-law, defeated the Persians, and, though he unaccountably retreated after a successful raid into Arzanen, he closed the year with an invasion of Media. But the Avars ravaged Moesia and starved Dorostolon and Marcianopolis into surrender, and Comentiolus, who had only 6,000 troops under his orders, could not effectively oppose them. Next year, however, a new general, John the Mustached, beat the Avars before Adrianople. Heraclius, father of the future emperor of the same name, ravaged the Persian borders, and when, in 588, the Persians besieged Constantina, it was relieved and the besiegers routed at Martyropolis. In 589, Martyropolis, was betrayed to the Persians. A Roman force marching to the relief was defeated, but Comentiolus, now appointed to the command, routed the Persians at Nisibis. Meanwhile, the Arabs raided Persian Mesopotamia, the Turks threatened the north, and the pressure on the Roman frontier slackened, The Turks were defeated by the general Vararan, who then hastened to oppose the Romans, but was twice routed on the Araxes. King Hormuzd insulted him for his ill success, and he promptly revolted. In September 590, Hormuzd was slain. His son, Kusru, afterwards called Aparvez, the victorious, appealed for help to Maurice, and made peace, thereby ending the wary war of raid and counter-raid. The Roman army marched to the aid of Kusru, Bararan was defeated and slain, and the rightful hare enthroned. By this kindly and, in the circumstances, well-timed act, Maurice gained a valuable accession of territory in Armenia, but Khusru was destined to be the most terrible enemy that the empire had had since Hannibal. Having ended the Persian War, Maurice brought across to Europe the bulk of the eastern army. He announced that he would himself take the command and set out to do so. But the opposition of the officials was so strong that he gave way, a proof of the huge influence possessed by the civil service, and of the comparative helplessness of the nominal head of state. In his place a general, Priscus, was appointed, who, after gaining some slight successes, was superseded by the emperor's own brother, Peter. Matters had reached such a pass that it was only by employing his relatives that the ruler could be sure of faithful service. There was no serious fighting, and for some years there was comparative quiet on the Danube, the Avars with the erratic instinct of barbarian nomads swerving off westward and attacking the Teutons in Germany. During these years, Maurice remained at Constantinople, working hard at attempts to reform the administration, struggling against the dead weight of bureaucratic opposition, which had baffled Justin and Tiberius II. He was crippled all his reign by the effects of the latter's unwise profuseness, and gained an undeserved reputation for miserliness, which he increased by certain ill-advised economies in the direction of docking the food and pay of the troops. He was unpopular in the capital, and his Christian values failed to win affection for him. When he refused to permit a heretic to be burned, he was stigmatized as unorthodox. His economy made him disliked both by army and civil service he could command no support from the people. In 597 the Avars passed once more over the Danube and defeated Peter, while the Slavs utilized the opportunity to besiege Thessalonica, so far south were they now established. In 598 Priscus again took over the chief command. Here lived Singidunum, and when the Avars invaded Dalmatia, they were defeated by an officer named Godwin, obviously a Teuton, perhaps even an Englishman. Next year, the Avars again crossed the Danube and besieged Tommy, where Priscus had entrenched himself. The siege was raised by Comentiolus early in 600, but his army retreated in a panic, and much mischief might have been caused. But the Avar's were decimated by disease. The Khagan's own son died of the plague, and he sued for peace, which was concluded on the basis that the Danube should be the boundary between Roman and Avar. A subsidy of only 20,000 solidi was paid. The pride of the barbarians had evidently sunk, but Maurice ruined himself by refusing to ransom the 12,000 captives and deserters in the hands of the Kahan, who thereupon gave way to savage fury and massacred them. It was at least one cause of the emperor's fall. The Avars retired across the Danube, Maurice immediately and shamelessly violated the peace. Priscus was across the Danube before the Avars could gather to oppose him. Near Vimiacum. he caught their rearguard and defeated it, and pressed up the Danube, routing their scattered hordes one after another. He reached the Thais before the Kahan could call in his subject tribes, and completely defeated him. Priscus next attacked and massacred a remnant of the Jepidae, who still remained in their ancient seats, and then, following up the Cahan, routed him in a final victory on the Thais. There were no important operations in 601. The Avars were hard-hit, the Romans Turned their attention to the Slavs. Many dispirited Avars deserted to them, and in six hundred and two the Teutonic general Godwin again crossed the Danube and gained a victory over the Slavs. Success now seemed at hand. Maurice directed the army to winter north of the river so as to be ready for decisive operations in the spring. At once the troops broke out into mutiny. They had some slight reason, perhaps, but they were guilty of the worst kind of military disobedience in refusing to perform their plain duty at a time when one more effort might have cured the avaric plague forever, and Dearly was the empire to rue the consequences of this outbreak of ill-conditioned military license. The army selected a centurion named Phocas as general, presumably for the admirable combination in his character of turbulence and cruelty, since we do not find him to be possessed of any other positive attributes and... Advanced on Constantinople. No opposition was made to it. The citizens opened their gates and Maurice fled across the Bosphorus. He was taken at Chalcedon and put to death with his five sons, the youngest a toddling child of three. With them died the emperor's brother, Peter, the distinguished general. Commentiolus, and Constantine Lardis, Maurice's chief minister and friend. Priscus saved himself by joining the army, with which he was naturally popular. He may have had a hand in the movement. The Empress, Constantina, and her three young daughters were spared, but straitly imprisoned, and the obscure Witless centurion mounted the throne. End of section five. Recording by Mike Botes.